you get off on the weird? Monsters, Halloween, horror. You've heard of word porn, car porn, earth porn. Now prepare yourself for monster porn. Is this really a good idea? Weird fiction and horror podcast. Created by the Backwards Hat Guy, Matt Cummins. Are you trying to teach psychic powers to animals? Puggles, the abomination trapped in the body of an adorable teacup piggy. Good for humans. And myself, lead occultist, Brett Norwood. Today's story is Cupid, bringer of dreams, maker of nightmares, by me. Happy quarantine, monster baiters. Well, some things have progressed since our last episode just two short weeks ago, and doubtlessly many of you have experienced some serious life changes in that short time, as many of us have, and not many for the better. Unprecedented things are happening. When things first started closing down, it felt like I'd woken up in a Twilight Zone episode, and I'm sure many of you had the same feeling. And you've probably seen the meme going around about this year, 2020, having been authored by Stephen King, which makes our ongoing Stephen King quest all the more urgent, I guess. But at least it wasn't written by George R.R. R. Martin. <laughs> yeah, that'd be bad. Anyway, Matt is unable to join me for this episode. Not because we're under mandatory shelter in place here, not yet, though maybe we're headed for it but rather because there's a nasty bug making the rounds in his family and he needed to stay home with Cassidy, his wife, and my bro. Is it the bug? Maybe. She called in to see if she should get tested and got turned away. She was told she wasn't a high-risk demographic, so we don't know if that's what it is. But going off of what I've heard, it sounds like it could be. Now, I'm not a doctor, of course. Not of anything mere human minds could understand, anyway. So who knows? Cassidy, if you're listening, hope you feel better. Matt's mom, if you're listening, I also hope you feel better. But for the love of God, what are you doing? Turn off this show. Monster porn is not for our mothers. Not in the least. And to all the Cummins, I say, stay the frick away from me, thanks. We know there are people, families, and businesses out there hurting right now from what's going on. Not only from the bug itself, but from the economic and social impacts of the countermeasures. Our thoughts go out to all of you. Longtime monsterbaiters Hannah and Joseph wrote in last week to let us know how things are going in Michigan. Like a lot of you, doubtlessly, they are under shelter in place currently, but say that things are keeping cool for them. We hope that continues. We're, um, not yet under shelter in place here, but we've got a mandate from the governor shutting down public spaces such as coffee shops, restaurants, gyms, etc. Schools have been closed for a couple weeks. So we're halfway there. But we haven't tallied very many confirmed cases yet either. Of course, that's easy to do when you're not testing the coughing people. <laughs> anyway, Monsterbaiters, thanks for continuing to listen. Uh, we appreciate that you're here with us, and you can always hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Don't be afraid to reach out. Just know that we reach back. And as of now, we hope to get Matt back on the next episode, and we will continue to go on with the show as scheduled. Thanks. Where am I? Puggles? Did you eat me? Am I inside you? Man, if I had a nickel for every time I had to say that. Of course he ate me. He may be trapped in the body of an adorable teacup piggy, but he's an eldritch god through and through. A girl Negathoth can't change its vesicles. You can take a Shuggoth out of the mines, but you can't... something something. You all know the cliché. Huh. I'm stuck all alone in Puggle's stomach, ankle-deep in acid and soggy crunch taters. It's almost as if I'm isolated, quarantined from the world. Surely no one can relate. What can I do to pass the time until he... he... oh god. There are only two ways out of here. Both bad, but one much better. All I have to entertain me are scraps of crunch taters. Hmm. 
They're so soggy they fold. Oh, there we go. I'll make a hat. Hmm. Looks more like a boat. Hey. Hey, look, it floats! Oh. Oh, phooey. There it goes down the drain. Hey, why is there a big red orb hanging in the drain like a... Like a party balloon? Is that what a duodenum looks like? Is that what a duodenum is? Hiya, Georgie! Oh, you... You again, Pennywise? What are you doing down in the drain hole with a balloon? We all float down here! Down where? Down in the bowels? Of course you do. If you didn't, you'd have to expect the proctologist to come knocking at the door. Give me that balloon, Pennywise. Hey! I'll kill you! Yeah, 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 I know. You say the same damn creepy shit over and over. Just like my mother. It's working! The balloon is hauling me up toward the post-esophageal sphincter. I'll make it to daylight in no time. I will bugger and facefuck you. You faggot Aurelius and fairy furious. Since going by my poems, I'm a whore. Apparently. I'm soft. And lack shame. I didn't quite get all of that out before Professor Harris stopped me. Marcus! She squeaked. That's quite enough. What? I retorted. Carmen 16 of Catalyst. That's a fairly literal translation. Your instructions said that Catalyst was fair game. I believe it's important that we encapsulate the full range of the Latin literary tradition. Professor Harris, red-faced, gripped the bridge of her nose and exhaled. I sat. Noah, that being a girl in this case, chubby, sweater vest, and black-rimmed glasses, not so much to look at, got up next and read her interpretation of Horace's famous ode, the one that starts, Question not, it's forbidden to know, what is my, is your end, and which gives us the cliché carpe diem in the last line. I listened, sitting in the circle the class had formed on the museum floor, and I looked over the walls, avoiding, all the while, looking anywhere near Allie. Okay, I looked once or twice, but only when I was absolutely sure her eyes were somewhere else. She did have a rocking body, after all. Professor Harris, who, you know, wasn't at all bad-looking herself, but was quite seriously married and generally disdainful of me, stood up after Noah had gone and folded her bony hands in front of her pumpkin-colored sweater. All right then, class, she said. That was a fine translation, Noah. I particularly enjoyed how you reinterpreted the structure of Horace's Ode into a contemporary English framework. Which is exactly what was wrong with the translation, I thought. Or interpretation, rather. Translation is a kind word. It contained half the substance and none of the form of the original Latin. It was a rambling and hackneyed imitation of Walt Whitman, who was already rambling and hackneyed not a rhythmic, nearly mathematical and orderly Roman poem. Good job, everyone, Professor Harris went on. I'm very impressed. Thank you all for having the courage to share with the class. I tried very hard to force Harris to make eye contact with me while she was saying this, but she did a great job of ignoring me. But Tess, across the circle, was looking at me and quietly sniffle-laughing. I knew I always liked Tess. There are great advantages to continuing education as an adult. One of them is that you're a 32-year-old man who knows how to carry himself in a room half full of 19-year-old young women who are readily flattered by the attention of an older man who takes care of himself and appears to have himself together. And that touches on the other advantage of going back to university right there. That appearance of having yourself together because this gave me something to do with myself after floundering through odd jobs in my 20s, having attained a degree in mere attendance, basically, out of my first stint in college during which I had no idea what to do with my life. Now, now I was a classicist. It sounds good, right? I was at this point just cleaning up a few courses I needed to get the proper undergrad degree, so I might get into grad school and ultimately go all the way. There was only one path with this degree, really, and that was to stay in academia, become a professor myself, probably. 
which, looking at the museum floor half full of 19-year-old young women, really sounded like a decent plan. I wish I'd thought of it earlier. Ah, Christ, but then there was Allie. I took her out a couple times. We made out a bit. Then shit went weird, and now I was stuck avoiding her in the confines of this rather small class for the rest of the semester. So there was a clear downside to the advantage of continuing education. Namely, I was trapped with these girls should things not work out. Really, I hadn't actually tried to date Allie. I tried to date Tess. How did I end up fooling around with Allie? Well, one time I was talking to Tess before class, and Allie walked in, and I had what I thought was a brilliant idea. I would play them off each other. I had joked around with Allie before and found she was friendly and had a sense of humor, so I thought I'd chat up Allie in front of Tess, who I'd just met, and give Tess the impression I had much better rapport with women than I had. Well, what happened was I didn't get a date with Tess. I, almost accidentally, got a date with Allie. Still, I was stoked about that. Objectively, Allie was probably the more physically attractive of the two. But then there really wasn't anything there. We went out, we made out. Then, without me asking anything of her, not explicitly anyway, Allie texted me a few hours later just to say she wasn't looking for a relationship or anything, but still wanted to hang out. I thought, okay, she's clearly attracted to me and still wants to hang out, so... So I didn't give up on it. We went out one more time after that, and it was weird. It was a little flirty, but quite platonic, and then she bailed before I could kiss her goodbye. And still, though, she texted me again after it, kind of flirty even then. What I picked up from this was that she wanted to make me an orbiter, and I wasn't going to be made into an orbiter. Not again. I'm not a backburner guy. I've been down that path and I don't like it. Damn it, woman, I'm 32. I feel like you should be taking me more seriously than that at this point. So, in what was perhaps not the most mature decision, but perhaps the most effective, I ghosted her. I just bailed out. Which, as I said, made going to class quite awkward. I had no idea what was going on in her head about me at that point. I was pretty sure she assumed that I hated her and hated me in return. I should have talked to her, had some denouement. But the thing is, I got comfortable in just avoiding the issue, and now it was what it was. Anyway, after Harris wrapped up the readings, we were free to meander through the Getty for a while. I found myself studying a blue hair, cookie tin kind of romantic painting. I thought it was a pre Raphaelite piece. It showed a vaguely Hellenic young woman with black curls sitting on the corner of a low-hewn stone wall, a bright blue cloth having fallen down into her lap to expose her youthful breasts and midriff, fighting off a toddler who's trying to clamber into her lap with wings and a dainty golden arrow poised in one hand. It was painted with the utmost realism. You could detect the warm sunlight bleeding through the green leaves of the tree behind her. You could practically feel the warmth coming off of her skin. The folds of the fallen garment were meticulously realistic. The most notable thing about the painting, though, was how he did flesh, warm and bulgy and slightly pink. That's how I would characterize the painting. Fleshy. I read the card and saw that it was William Adolphe Bougereau, young girl defending herself against Eros. Professor Harris spoke behind me and was soon standing beside me at the painting, crossing her arms. I glanced at her, and then resumed studying the painting. They couldn't agree on the genealogy of Cupid, she said. Some sources say that Cupid was the child of Venus in adultery with Mars, but others that he was a primordial being, a pre-god, being of the same generation as such formless and eternal beings as night and terror and matter. This was before there were gods who were properly gods. And it was Cupid, in fact, who caused the gods to come to be by introducing sex to the primordial beings, allowing them to reproduce and fill the cosmos. Before that, those primordial anti-gods instead, to reproduce, tore themselves apart. I looked at Professor Harris again. She had her dirty blonde hair up. She was a stick-built, bird-like woman but with an air of dignity about her, and blue-gray eyes. 
She looked a little like a plain-clothes country Christian or like a bunner or something like that. But she was a liberal and a doctor of the classics. A good story, Professor, I told her. What's the moral? Same thesis as Ovid, she said, not looking at me. It's not my thesis. I'm just reporting the information to a student. You could look at the entire corpus of Greco-Roman myth as a battle between Jupiter, the king attempting to bring and uphold order in the cosmos and with humanity, by force if necessary, and the little child Cupid, who, in choices so oft beguiled, as Shakespeare put it, yet even Jupiter himself, king of the cosmos, is easily overwhelmed by the little god's irrational power. Ah. That's why he doinked the swan, I said. Yes, she repeated, unamused and mocking. That's why he doinked the swan. After a second, she went on. Why are you even here, Marcus? That's not very encouraging to hear from my professor, I told her. I mean, she said, why come back to school at this age if you're not going to take anything seriously? It's clear to me you're not as interested in seriously studying the classics as you are in, uh, seriously studying young women who are, I will remind you, not that long out of high school, and are trying to take their studies seriously. I assure you I am serious, I said, about the classics. I actually took great care in translating Catalyst. <laughs> if he could both compose good meter and get a ribald laugh, while going gangster rapper on his critics. Can I? There are places where that might be appropriate, and places where it is not, she told me. You do have a way with words, and there is nothing wrong with your translations or your papers when you cut through the attempts at being smart, but... The word attempts hurt me. In truth, I bet my papers entertained the hell out of her. But. I echoed. If you really want to get into academia, Marcus, a lot of it is politics. I'm not saying that's a good thing, necessarily. It's just how it is. How you present yourself matters. And, above all, conveying that you are serious about what you're studying matters. I hummed and said, I understand. I could have insisted that I showed my passion through my uh, unconventional approach to the subject matter but I didn't press it. So why are you here, Marcus? Just to goof around? She pointed with her eyes at Allie, and I was offended. I also wondered how much she knew, and for the love of Zeus, how she knew it. I drew an admittedly dramatic breath and gave her my answer. I'm here because I wasn't happy where I was, and I wanted to start my adulthood over, basically. I asked myself what field really spoke to me, and when I was in school the first time, fears of the impracticality of a career in the humanities scared me away from it. But I decided it's what I want to do. When I was off work, you know, I'd find myself rereading Virgil for fun, even challenging myself to chew through the Latin. Why? I don't know. But out of all the things in the cosmos, it seems to be the one thing I can do all day long and not get sick of it. Hmm, she said, nodding. I almost believe you. Again, I was offended, but just smiled and shook my head. I'm being entirely honest, I said. Look, maybe I've got a streak of the entertainer in me, which comes out when compelled to get up in front of people and recite a poem or present a paper, right? But I'm sure this is the field I want to be in. I'm just sorry it took me a decade to figure it out. Mm-hmm, she toned nodding at me blankly like a shrink. Then she gave me a more chastening look and went away. I frowned thoughtfully and resumed looking over the painting. And then I moved on. My buddy in the class, Corey, found me gazing stupidly up at some installation art in the lobby that was a bunch of string and pipes and dangling foil in the rafters that really looked like nothing and not even good at that. Sub hombre, he said and threw out a fist bump. What do you think, bro? I think whatever this is, it was made by cats and monkeys. Uh-huh, he agreed. But dude, that's art. 
It's in the Getty, man, so it must be art, right? Right, I said. Dude, I can't believe you, he said. What? My head was in the wrong place. Corey was convinced I was chasing Professor Harris, and having just spoken with her at some length, I figured he was about to be on about that again. Dude, he said. You said... He got really quiet, glancing around. You said... He got very quiet. Faggot. In class and... And face-fuck and you got away with it. He burst out laughing. I shrugged. It was in the original text. It's a literal translation. It's part of the Western tradition. The huevos on you, boy, he said. Despite the Hispanicisms, Corey was half Chinese, half Caucasian. He was a metalhead who literally wore it on the sleeve of his Flesh God Apocalypse t-shirt. I found there was a high incidence of metalheads in classical studies. And my theory on it was that they read the Iliad in high school and saw how brutal it was. What with Diomedes wounding the gods, Achilles dragging Hector's corpse to the dust in front of his family, high Olympian Zeus weeping freaking tears of blood over the fallen Sarpedon. It doesn't get much more metal than that. Our conversation was interrupted when I winced and shouted, Ouch! What's that, bro? He wondered. I turned over the back of my hand in front of my face, where I had just, instinctively, swatted a bumblebee and gotten stung. Is that a bee, dude? He gasped, seeing the crumbled corpse fall from my hand. Yeah, man, I said. I guess. Where'd that come from? I stepped on the little bastard for good measure and then squinted and concentrated to pull out the tiny black stinger he'd left in the back of my hand, raising a welt. I humphed at it and rubbed the sting while he went back into the exhibit rooms. We found most of the class in the featured exhibit that was our reason for being there. The Getty was hosting a traveling show of ancient Italian artifacts, mostly Roman, some Etruscan, even some Oscan and Umbrian pieces, including a notable ossuary. I started making a counterclockwise tour of the room while Corey got sidetracked trying to chat with some girl. The first thing I looked at was a potsherd bearing the partial inscription of the Celtic name Helvetios, written in Old Italic. What I didn't see at first was that Allie was right there too. When I saw her turn halfway and she was about to turn away again, I stole a glance and I said, I wonder what Helvetios kept in his pot. Allie stopped and lifted an eyebrow, but didn't look at me in the eye. Probably pot, she said dryly, but I detected a faint upturn of her lip. That, I said, pointing at the jagged edge of the shard, and also apparently some crack. Allie shook her head. Not the first conversation I expected to have with her since we stopped messaging. Maybe things were fine. Maybe it was all fine. I looked down her blouse. She crossed her arms and hummed, twiddling her shoulders like she was getting antsy, or annoyed. She said, well, hummed, and then turned and went away. Tess was reading the placard on an artifact in the middle of the room. I started over to her and I noticed there was another bee, a bee on her back. Hey, I said, coming up behind her. I don't want to alarm you, but... But then why'd your mother give you that face? She interrupted with a wry grin. I exhaled as if punched in the gut and laughed. <laughs> no, I said, hold still. What is it? She wondered. I flicked the bee with my fingernail and it took off. There was a bee on your back, I told her. Really? Yeah, I said. One just stung me. It's true, I saw it. Corey chimed in, done with the girl he had been attempting to chat up, and having set his sights on us. Wonder where they're coming from, I said. But anyway, so what is this? I nodded at the small ivory box that was under glass. This, Tess said, leaning back to read the placard again, is Cupid's Ark, an early Roman ivory box depicting mythological scenes and vine motifs with amores. The amores are a motif in art like the Renaissance puti, pudgy winged babies, some with quivers and arrows, often among grapevines. For the Romans, these depicted cupids. Huh, I toned. Never heard of it. 
Apparently, it's something special, Tess said. Never toured before. Been in the Vatican's collection for at least since the early Middle Ages. This thing hasn't seen the light of day in over a thousand years before hitting the road for this exhibit. Huh, I said. It was merely a few inches wide and a few deep. I would have guessed it was a makeup box. There was lettering in early italic along the base of the box. I read it. Omnia vincit amor. Love conquers all. Virgil, Eclog 10. But it's on the side of an early Roman box, Corey said. That's weird. Not really, I told him. Even before Virgil, it was a cliché. Cupid's Ark, eh? Corey repeated, circling around it. Is it like an Indiana Jones, only when the Nazis finally open it, instead of their faces melting, they have a crazy Roman orgy? That would be a very different movie, I said. Tess flicked a smile at me. Vesuvius might have erupted at that moment. Corey spoke up again. I hear Priapus's Ark is bigger. Corey looked at us expectantly. You know who Priapus is, right? Yes, we get it, I said, though I had no idea whether Tess got it. The dick god, Tess said, rolling her eyes. This sounds like university-level discussion, Professor Harris said behind us. Believe it or not, we're actually on topic, Corey answered, flashing double thumbs up and reminding me that I was, at this point, of a different generation than these kids, a generation that would never have made that gesture in front of peers with any shred of self-respect. Yet I had seen several of them do it now. So, Tess began, turning to me. I've got a question for you. Even though what she started describing next was an issue related to her term paper, still my heart flip-flopped a couple times. She asked me a question about the obscure poet Statius, more famous for having a moderate speaking role in the Divine Comedy than for his own works. I listened attentively as I could with those green eyes sparking at me, and nodded enthusiastically when timing demanded it. Sometimes I would stand next to Corey and Tess, and some of the other students, and feel like a fifth grader held back in the first grade, a dumb giant among healthy babes. But alternatively, sometimes I found that they, and Tess in particular, would speak to me like I was the professor, or at least a grad assistant, bringing questions to me they should have taken to Harris. They conflated seniority with expertise, I imagined. Maybe I was less intimidating, too. I don't know. I think Harris resented it a little, but I enjoyed it. And I never led anybody astray. If I didn't know something, I would say that I didn't know. I like to think, maybe, that my passion for the classics spoke for itself, though, and Maybe that's why they felt I was a resource. I was starting to give Tess my advice when Corey interrupted, saying, So Cupid's basically the grandson of Saturn's nuts and some seafoam, right? I gave him a look. Actually, his pedigree is disputed, apparently. Ask Harris about it. Or Hesiod. I just realized Corey was trying pretty hard to impress Tess. Before I could continue giving her my answer, Harris called us into a circle. It's okay, Tess said, and she reached and touched my forearm. We'll finish later. I nodded, and we merged into the forming huddle beside Cupid's Ark. I crossed my arms and hovered behind the other students, getting that idiot fifth grader feeling I just described. I looked across at Harris and reflected. She's my peer here. These are kids. Which made me feel pretty weird about how erotic Tessa's simple touch on the forearm had been. How it was still buzzing on my skin. Speaking of buzzing, I almost forgot about the welt on my hand, which now I regarded and rubbed. Missing the first part of whatever Harris was saying. I could feel Allie standing with crossed arms across the group, and I thought, Yeah, to heck with Allie. I felt good about Tess. When I did look at Harris, she was looking at me, and she halted mid-word before averting her eyes and continuing. She was wrapping up the trip, but then I noticed she was looking at Cupid's Ark, and her words failed her again for a moment, and in the pause, I heard a plink. Slowly, plink by repeated plink. It called her attention person by person to the glass over the little ivory box, where a bumblebee was trapped on the inside 
flying repeatedly, like an idiot, into the invisible barrier trying to get out. Harris got the attention of one of the staff, who in turn got someone else, a curator, I suppose, with gloves and a set of tools. We watched as the curator leaned in, almost putting his nose on the glass, his breath fogging it a little, and watched the bee. Then another appeared in there under the glass, originating from the box, though I didn't see how it came out. And it flew, cannily, right to an imperfection in the pedestal, where it could squeeze its body under the edge of the glass and fly out. The curator stood up, as this was right by where his face had been, and watched him go. Then he carefully lifted the glass to inspect the box. He took a gloved finger and touched where the lid met the lip of the box, and pulled it away, trailing a tether of fine, golden liquid. Honey. Are there... Corey stuttered. Are there bees in it? A hive? A third bee forced his way out from under the lid, rattling it slightly, but succeeding mostly due to a small gap in the fit of the lid. He crawled down the side of the box and then took flight. Yet another whizzed by my ear suddenly, making me duck, headed in toward the box and landing on it. The curator didn't think to clear the room, which probably would have been wise even if it had only been fucking bees. But instead I think he was just so damn perplexed that he hardly thought twice before gently and ponderously lifting the lid with two fingers. Well, first there were more bees. We all fell back and swiped at the air to keep them out of our faces. Second, there was sort of a wet sucking sound, kind of like a fart and a gasp at once. Imagine if you could inhale through your butthole. Third, well, there was the utter annihilation of all sanity. The amores flooded into the room like a deluge of rosy, pudgy flesh, but not those cherubic babes of Italian Renaissance art, no but toddler-sized flesh slugs slobbering from round, beady-eyed faces that were set in hoods of skin that could only remind a guy of certain anatomical parts normally found at the other end of a human being. More of them than I could count in a glance slurped out of this tiny box that should have been way too small for even one of them and threw themselves against the walls and ceiling stupidly, like that bee who had been trying to escape the box wailing with gurgling infant sounds and covered in red welts from stings of bees that swarmed around them. We all scattered for the exits, but the curator was the first to fall prey to the amores. One of them pointed a pudgy, flaccid baby arm at him, an appendage which ended in something more like a sea anemone than a hand, with three finger-like projections having orifices at the tips. And the thing extruded a long black sliver from one of those, launching it with enough force to fly across the room and run through the curator's throat. He reached up for it, choking, with a faltering, shaking hand, blood running down his neck and mouth, and continued to stumble for the door. I grabbed Tess by the back of her shirt and pulled her toward the atrium with Corey close behind us. One of them came with us, too, crashing through the horrid insulation right over our heads sending scraps of foil, sections of PVC pipe, and dead bees raining down on us as we sprinted through. Gurgling with displeasure, the cupid rammed into the ceiling above us as we reached the doors, and drywall bits fell down on us. Disoriented, it fell to the floor with a fatty thwop and writhed as I pulled the door open, but this thing was thrashing toward us, compelling us back from the door again. I kicked it. It was like kicking the dead weight of a punching bag lying on the ground, and I hardly moved it. I saw its hand come up and I backed away, pressing Tess and Corey back with my arm. I managed to have the presence of mind to put protecting Tess from getting speared over my own fear, and before I knew what I was doing, I had lunged for the thing, picking it up and holding it at arm's length. It writhed and hissed and tried to point a hand at me, which I kept trying to turn away. The purple, fatty wings beat against my arms and nearly reached my face. Go out the door! I yelled at Tess and Corey. Tess began to oblige. As she opened the door, another student rushed by and out the door as she held it, screaming. The cupid hissed at me, and I remembered to pay attention to those evil little hands. But I heard a sound, and I glanced at Corey and Tess. It's burned into me what happened, and it was my fault for holding the stupid baby. One of those long black stingers was stuck in Corey's head. That's the first thing I saw. A stupid look on his dorky face going cross-eyed with the thing through his Ajna Chakra. 
I shot put the cupid against the wall, and it bounced and bobbed through the air on its half-blind way. But as I went to grab Corey, the worst of it became apparent. You see, Tess was right behind him. As Corey fell to his knees, Tess went with him. They were stuck together now, that damned stinger making a shish kebab out of their heads. Blood began to run. They toppled onto the floor as the horror made me choke and my eyes began to well. But I didn't have time to absorb it. Because three more of them were coming along the front of the building. And rather than pass over my friends and try to get out of the entrance, in my panic I doubled back and stared into the museum, leaping over the receptionist who had, at some point unnoticed by me, been shot through the eye and now lay on the floor, tongue out and twitching a long tear streak of blood on her face. For a while, running through the exhibit halls, I didn't see them, the Cupids, or anyone. Everyone had made it toward the exits, and the middle of the complex was abandoned. But as I passed the exhibit that hosted Cupid's Ark, something caught my eye and I stopped. At first because I thought it was someone I needed to help escape, but then I realized it was the curator. He was still walking around with that thing through his neck, and he wasn't alone. There was a woman in a security uniform there with him, stuck through with another stinger. And they pressed themselves together and kissed, slobbering zombie grins cutting up their otherwise blank faces. I ran through to another hall. That's where I saw Professor Harris. She was fucking nailed to the painting of the girl fighting off Cupid. What fucking irony, right? She had one of those stingers right through her collar. Her head and arms hung lax, and blood had already seeped down her sweater. A lock of hay-blonde hair had broken free of her bun and dangled over her forehead. One of the amores followed me into the room, buzzing up high by the ceiling. The tiny charcoal eyes seemed nearly blind in the way they moved around, bumping on the ceiling and navigating by zigzagging forays through the room. Saliva fell over his purple bottom lip. The little fucker made some sort of guttural noise and wiggled his fingers, but he didn't seem to be looking at me yet if he was looking at anything. I started for the next room, but another was in there near the door and they had me trapped. So I started grabbing art off the walls and chucking it. I hoped to persuade the fucker to leave the room, but I just succeeded in getting his attention and ticking him off. A stinger caught in the painting I was about to chuck, faster than a blink of an eye. Now my shield of pure chance. So I pulled the stinger, and now I was armed with something like a sword and shield. Keeping the canvas between myself and those wiggling fingers as best as I could, I worked my way toward him until I could stick him with his own stinger in the chub beneath his face that might have been a neck if he had a neck. This made him wail and fall to the floor as something like soup poured out of his mouth. Great, <laughs> I mumbled and laughed nervously in tentative triumph. We had danced our way around the room like boxers in the ring and I found myself by the wall. A hand fell on my shoulder. I turned around and it was Harris, gazing at me with dull eyes and a vague smile. Blood and honey ran over her lip. Her skin was pale, clammy looking, but her cheeks flush. Harris grabbed my neck with both hands. Professor? I stuttered. You know, she mumbled. I've always been fond of you, Marcus. If I challenge you, it's because I look at you and I see so much potential and... I don't want to see it squandered. I opened my mouth, but only some sort of questioning groan came out. She pulled me hard toward herself and kissed me, forcefully. With tongue. With blood and honey. The blunt end of the stinger poked against my sternum. I pushed away, wiping my mouth on my arm, and stumbled backward through the room. She was reaching for me, reaching hopelessly from the wall, smiling faintly. A bittersweet and fading smile. You... You don't like me, do you? She whined. I've seen how you look at the younger girls. You're married! I shouted at her. And gored to a fucking wall, I thought. I could never turn heads like some of the other girls, even when I was that age, she went on. But now not even John ever seems to want me. She started to cry and babble, and that's when I bumped into someone else. Shit! I said to Allie, who just came in the door. You don't have one on you, do you? She demanded, glancing me over. You! Professor Harris cried from the wall. Little harlot! She's not herself, I said to Allie and shoved her back through the door. Let's move. 
We rushed through several rooms, avoiding the cupids where we could until we came to a hallway following the exit signs, where we were caught with one of them advancing toward us. Allie stopped me and pulled a pistol out of her handbag. Do you know how to use it? She asked me urgently. Where did you get that? I wondered. Off of one of the security guys, she said. Here. I've, uh, I've never shot, I told her, not rushing to take it. She gave me a look and pointed the gun at the cupid, and I heard the trigger click. Nothing happened. I heard the safety click off, and she tried again. A shot rang out and hit the bobbing creature, which screamed and then tumbled across the floor. She'd injured a wing. The guy throbbed and jerked on the polished cement like he was still trying to get to us. I stomped on his forward hand, the other was under his body, and held it with my foot as Allie leapt over him and then I followed. Good shot, I muttered, as we came around the corner and found a fire door between us and the promised exit. It was either locked or jammed, so we turned back the way we came. That one we shot was still creeping on the floor, leaving a slug trail of purplish blood and mouthing at us. But worse than this, a figure stood at the end of the hallway, facing us. It was Corey. Blunt end of that stinger poking out of his third eye. Death metal shirt and cargo shorts and dopey cross-eyed expression. Corey? I shouted. Allie stopped running. A hand appeared on Corey and then another, running up and down his torso and neck. Still pinned to him from behind was Tess, and all I could see of her were her hands dancing over Corey as a dumb grin cracked open his face. Damn it, I spat, and I prodded Allie with my hand on her lower back. She cast a quick, uncertain glance at me, not able to tell where I supposed we were going since we seemed trapped. Corey heard me, and one of his eyes was able to fasten on me still. He laughed an empty laugh and said to us, Get a room, you guys. Behind him, Tess laughed girlishly. Fuck, I swore. And that's when all of the cupids, like every single one of them, started creening down the hall from behind them. I grabbed Allie and we ran up the hall far enough to duck into the nearest exhibit. There was a marble statue in the classical style similar to David in the middle of the room. We took cover behind it and Allie readied her gun. Her hands were shaking. We're stuck, Allie said. We're fucking stuck. I didn't say anything but watched the door. But I glanced again at Allie. Her eyes were glassy and frantic. How bad can it be? I wondered with dry irony. They're the happiest looking zombies I've ever seen. It's not a time for jokes, she chastised. We're fucked. We were astounded to see the torrent of Cupid surge by our door and keep going, save for one that bumbled in by himself, as if he drew the short stick out of all of them to seek us out. I've been bitten before, Allie yelled at the creature, and I won't let you hurt me again. I guess Baby Love wasn't blind, because he dropped right on Allie as she fired her first shot, which must have missed him in the panic. And somehow between the three of us in that moment the statue toppled, and I went with it. It fell into my arms on the floor like a leaden lover crushing my goddamned ribcage as Allie went to the floor with that thing thrashing in her lap, threatening her with that little black tip pointing out of his finger at her throat. She shot again. It went through the cupid. I saw a chunky spray from the exit wound as he hissed. I tried to roll the statue off of me. Allie grabbed the thing's little hand and pointed it away from her and pressed the muzzle of the gun up to its chin. She stopped screaming and said, Not today, little fucker! She shot again. But, again, it didn't stop him. Now he had his other hand on her. I shouted her name. Now her eyes were wide. She had thought she had the upper hand, but now she wasn't sure. The cupid batted at the gun and screamed, and Allie screamed too. A shot went into the ceiling. Then Allie turned the gun on herself. It happened as I finally wrote the statue off of myself and got to my knees. I screamed her name one more time as she fell back. The Cupid turned to me. I ran down the hall with her gun in my hand. I had no idea whether it still had rounds. 
I followed the direction the whole swarm had gone. After I'd dated Allie, I'd thought she didn't like me. I'd taken it personally when she told me to cool it. What she said before she died told me she'd been hurt before. And she was afraid of me. She was afraid to let herself feel for me. God damn it, I was sobbing. Maybe we could have been something. If she hadn't been hurt. If I hadn't been stupid about it. And I felt hatred for whomever let her down before. But really, no. Really it was him. It was love himself. I was going to kill them. I was going to fucking kill them all. I staggered into the last exhibit before the fire doors. In the middle of the room, they had swarmed around something, making sucking and oozing sounds. I raised the gun, but as I did, I saw the stinger right in my ribs. My arms were shaking. My face was wet. The amores scattered. A figure stood from whence they scattered. He was like a man robed in velvety red. He wore a white mask, smooth like polished porcelain. It had eyes like a person, but instead of a mouth, the lower part of the mask had something like a porcelain donut. Around the chin of the mask, something like nappy beard hair poked out in strands, but it looked more like rugged electrical cables. The eyes peering through the mask were bloodshot, pink, and looked at me. I'm gonna fucking kill you, you fucking son of Saturn's nuts! I told him. Five days since my balloon popped, and I ended up in the intestines. God, Puggles, what did you eat? All this fucking corn! Do you just chug canned corn when we're not looking? Oh, look, there's the can. It's dated March 1993. You've had this corn in your colon for almost 30 years?! God, it looks like it just came out of the can yesterday! The grass falls, the flower fades, but a can of corn is forever, I guess. Amen! Amen! Hallelujah! Who said that? Oh, snout of Anubis. They look like Amish kids creeping through the field of corn sluice. We must deliver thee to him who squats behind the rose. What? Yeah, Brother Mordecai! The grass falls, the flower fades, but the can of corn is forever! Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. 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 Amen. Oh no. It's the children of the corn. We must deliver thee unto him who squats behind the rose, Bert. Uh, it's bread, actually. And you little shits can stay away from me. Down here, we're all just little shits in the end. Monster Corn Godcast is a production of Him Who Squats Behind the Rose. Today's story was Cupid, bringer of dreams, maker of nightmares, by me, Brett Norwood.
Good day, Monster Baiters. You know who this is. No point saying my own name ten times in an episode, right? Especially when Matt's not here. So, Brett here. Oh, damn it, I did it anyway. Anyway, if Cupid stuck you with his love rod, be sure you're subscribed and please, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute and helps us out a great deal. Thanks to all of our Monster Baiters for their love and support. You can also check out the official Monster Porn store at monsterpornpodcast.com store where you can find corn, cans and cans of corn. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, The Street. No, 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 social distancing, never mind. Um, anyway, that's it. Until the shark angels come, monster baiters, stay weird. And Godspeed, strange cowboy, you man of perennial mystery. Eshigura Nagath can't change its vesicles. Let's try that again. God, I... I didn't even get to changing its vesicles. Echigura Nagath can't change its vesicles. Why do all my made-up eldritch gods sound like obscure racial slurs? One time I was talking to Tess before class, and Allie walked in and I had what I thought was a brilliant thought. Yeah, I thought a thought is brilliant. I'm changing that wording. But then why'd your mother give you that face? She um she interrupted. Apparently, it's something special, Tess said, rather nasally. I wonder if she has a cold. He took the glove. He took the glove. God damn it.